Thank you everyone for tuning back in. Quick reminder, this is part two of a two-part series on the history of prayer, Jewish prayer, tefillah, and prayer in general. So to get the full picture, I recommend listening to the first part. This episode covers prayer from the times of the first monarchy in Israel until the 21st century. There are points that I made that you kind of need to understand some of the terms we're using in the first part of the episode, in the first part of the history episode. So you can check that out on our website, genuinejudaism.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in, and with please contact us with any questions, comments, or to get our sources. The email that we use is delvedeeper at genuinejudaism.org. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the episode. So now we're going to discuss, um, like we said, the first monarchy of Saul up until much later on after the destruction of the second temple. So in the broader world, outside of the Jewish realm, we, we have the, the prayers. Now we have the Babylonians, Persians, Romans, Greeks, and Syrians, all very dominant uh, military nations. And in the Israelite world, most of our prayers come from this era, uh, mostly from the, the men of the great assembly. Prayer started becoming much more personal. Uh, and after the, the oral law had been written down, uh, it became much more acceptable to write down prayers and all sorts of other things. Uh, there were still, up until the destruction of the temple, there still were the daily sacrifices. But uh, from what I understand, the prayer would accompany the sacrifices when they would bring the carbon tumid, the, the the continuous offering in the morning, that would be done alongside with the morning prayers. Same thing in the afternoon. That's why uh, Mariv, the evening services, are considered, is considered to be somewhat optional because there was no sacrifices after the sunset. Yeah, so um, I may disagree with you on that, but let's, let's, okay. go, let's talk about that in the discussion episode. Get ready for the discussion episode, guys. It's going to be the first oh, that's time we disagree. All right. Um, so the broader world. We got the ancient Greek empire here. It's the 12th. They were very um, prominent from the 12th century before common era till the 6th century common era. Um, they were a polytheistic people whose worship was most like, was probably the most flexible in what it could accomplish. There were a lot of gods, you know, in their culture. It was basically pick and choose what you liked and what you wanted it for. But then it evolved into the 12 Olympians. What, you know, um, prayer was used for all types of things and they, gods had different capacities to do stuff. Um, you see kind of a, there still is animal sacrifices here, huge thing, but child sacrifices were virtually abolished. Um, and you can see this kind of being aided by the Israelite culture and their overtaking of the Middle East, I guess, and kind of the disappearance of these gods, Moloch and all this and all that. Um, they, there were still a few little cults here and there, but they were virtually extinct. So then you have the Persian Empire um, or the old Iranian Empire that was prominent from the 7th century before Common Era until the 6th century Common Era. 
from what I understand, they were Zoroastric in that they believed that Zoroastrianism is, Zoroastrianism is believed to be a, a monotheistic religion. It's a, it, it kind of is. Um, it believes in a dualistic God, from what I understand, a, a force of good and a force of evil. Most prayers in Zoroastria, Zoroastrianism. Not monotheism. Not monotheism. <laughs> Most of the prayers in Zoroastrianism are to get evil off of oneself, you know, to kind of be dis disconnected from that. Uh, so that's probably where you see all these like kind of exorcist rituals from. It's not. Pro it's probably not just from Christianity. It probably has roots there also. That's now, let's talk about the Roman Empire or the pre and pre Christianity. I'm talking about not the Imperial Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire was a the the Roman Empire was a force to be reckoned with. They went around the world conquering, but rather than destroying gods, they incorporated them. Each individual was free to practice their own worship as long as they were ethically orthopraxy, which means that as long as you're, in today's world, your religion didn't impede, impede on the rights of others, um, you could worship it, which by the way, did not happen because assassins were hired by, you know, by the word of their, by the word of gods and you would pray to gods to kill other family members and all this. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't happen now, but it's much less rampant. It was very, it was very, it wasn't very complicated for the Romans to get everybody to, to switch their deities because they viewed them as interchangeable. It was just a tool to be used for things. So to switch from one God to another, and this is like historically, like everybody agrees on this was no big deal to just be like, Oh, well, I guess next week I'll worship this other God and I'll get these Pretty benefits much. as opposed to those. As in like, I'm assuming it was psychologically a bit complicated, but like for the person, but it's no legally, it wasn't an issue. Um, which is what I think you're trying to, you, you were saying. No, no. I mean, personally, people, people, the, this, the people would just. No, I'm saying they would, obviously, but I'm just saying, like, you know, it's, I don't think it's as light and dandy as you think it is. Maybe not. Maybe Discussion not. time. God dang it. Okay. Okay, fine. Yeah. So we got the deity Ramon. Um, this, we got a Syrian, we got the Syrian king, uh, deity, sorry, the Syrian deity called Ramon, which was probably the uh, original Zeus kind of. Um, it was the deity of thunder, an ultimate god, a god over the kings and the people. So royalty was essentially only subservient to the god Ramon in the Syrian culture. Uh, we see this in the book of Kings 2 um, about Syria. So like David said, all, like David said, all of our daily prayers that we see, pretty much all of them come from this era. And they're mostly King David's Psalms, obviously. Um, but they're also from the prophets Isaiah. He said the daily incantation of holy, holy, or Kodesh, 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 you know, um, this and that. And Ezekiel is also another one that we say, uh, Ezekiel's prayers also, but they're mostly sentences and King David's Psalms where we recite on the daily. Um, prayer over here is much more personal, like David said. It's really just reflecting on the current situation of your life. There's even instances where it's reflection on the, it's a society reflection on, a societal reflection on the society's life. And you see it when Nehemiah rebuilds the temple and he starts that whole, and the Torah is reread and it's reintroduced to everyone and it's retranslated. The entire community has spokespeople who praise God and the, we say it every day. We say, Vayavarich David and David. Uh, no, um, yes, it's in the second half of Vayavarich David with the blessing of David that we say in the morning. A very introspective time for, uh, for the Jewish people. So now we're going to move on to the final era. 
we're going to talk about the era between, well, more than one era, from the Second Temple destruction up until the 21st century, so a period of about 2,000 years? Yeah, 2,000, 2,200, 2,100, whatever. All right. So first we're going to, like we've done earlier, come at it from the uh, more broad point of view of just how the world looked at prayer, and then we'll move over to the Jewish way of looking at it. We got the Christians and the Muslims, and what is this here? Confucianism. You'll have to elaborate on that. And, of course, Buddhism. So let's hear it, Dave. Thank you for that. You're not going to like some things I have to say about this, but it's fine. Okay. So Christianity at its inception, you know, uh, this was a bit after the time of the Second Temple destruction, like maybe 100 years, give or take, 150, whatever, 200. Some would say 300, you know. Um, Essentially, in the Imperial Roman Empire, prayer was in the hands of the church fathers. But essentially, in Imperial Rome, the way that prayer was viewed, it was as a means to get out of purgatory by paying tributes to the churches because they're the only ones who wielded the power to get out of purgatory. Uh, I guess until really the, the rise of Martin Luther Christianity kind of, um, now after the rise of Martin Luther King and kind of the whole reform movement in Christianity, not like reform Judaism, it was just the reform of the entire system, which kind of, it lasted, but also it didn't because you see it in many uh, sects of Christianity nowadays. Um, there's still a lot of the fact that prayer is involved in repentance, but Christianity is much more free-flowing in its types, in the types of prayer you can offer. It's, uh, it's really, it's supposed to be prayers from the heart. Now the, the, I mean, the ultimate kind of thing with that is that it's very hard to be a devout religious person and have prayers like... In order to have meaningful prayer, to me, it's like there's beauty in simplicity, but also there's beauty in intricacy. You know, like if, like, okay, regardless, you know, Christianity's prayers started off as a means of repentance and out of purgatory. um, And then it kind of flowed to, okay, we're going to, you know, every person's going to have their own type of way of connecting and they can say whatever they want, you know, as long as they're singing or saying it from the heart which I find very nice, but uh, it's not as commonly practiced as you would think. Um, well, mainly because Christianity, like most, most people are Christian and like, they're just not like, it's not a, I'm not saying this derogatorily, they're just not religious. It's just, it's just hard to pray if you only pray once a week. Very true. You need like a set system. That's, that's true. Yeah. Now let's, the Islamic culture began in around the seventh century common era. Um, I know that really there's, it started before then, but historically speaking, it came into the field in the seventh century. Their, so their prayer is like, we know they pray five times a day to Mecca. Um, it's very, Not to Mecca, towards Mecca. Towards Mecca. Yes, you're right. You're Where's right. the distinction? You're, you're correct. So they pray towards Mecca. And the way it was described when I was reading about it is a complete devotion of mind, body, and soul. And they're kind of like set prayers. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of a, like, that's a description, but I don't see how, 
Okay, like it's it's a description, you know, it's um, mind, body, and soul. That's Islamic culture. I think the prayer in Islamic culture has virtually been unchanged. Um, there there hasn't been any kind of evolution that I've seen that I was able to find in Islamic culture for prayer that has been accepted by the community. Um, I could, if you know of any, please contact us. I know that they that they still do prostrations, which we don't do, which is a full extension. Uh, they don't do the full, full hishtachavia, uh, which would be completely stretched out from, it's more than a bow, it's lying flat on your face with your hands outstretched that way and your legs stretched out the other way. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do something closer to that. But uh, Christianity does a lot of kneeling. But Judaism kind of, after the, after the Khurban, after the destruction of the temple, we, we, yeah, we don't, for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure why, we don't, you, we don't um, you don't kneel for the most part. Well, I mean, there is Yom Kippur, but we don't uh, prostrate aside, aside for Yom Kippur. Um, there is a prohibition in the Talmud about, no, I'm sorry, not in the Talmud. This is in, 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 this, in the scripture about prostrating yourself upon uh, stones, hewn stones. Uh, I think that's the idea to not the idea that we're not replacing the temple. That only in the temple can you can you do this kind of prostration. This is kind of mundane information. That's cool. So that's the Islamic culture and the Christian culture are kind of Eastern, like Middle Eastern and kind of... And we'll call them, Islam for sure, Christianity maybe, we'll call them monotheistic. Right, so um, I happen to believe that Christianity is monotheistic and nobody will agree with me on that. Depends on the sect. That's true. that's That's very true. There's a lot of nuance. Fair enough. What is Confucianism? You got to tell me about Confucianism. So you're not going to like me for this, but I actually find Confucianism to be the best form of prayer. Like not the best, but I wish that everybody could live up to that standard. Let's hear it. Even even though I know Confucius was um, morally questionable and some people claim he was morally, you know, bereft. uh, What? Bereft. No, that, that's what I said first. It was morally, he's morally bereft, but uh, some people claim... Like, it's, it's like a... It's two sides of a coin. Some people claim that he was morally bereft. Um, some people claim he was morally enlightened. I don't know. Uh, you know, Whatever it was. But Confucianism kind of believes in... They don't... They're kind of atheistic. They are atheistic. They're, uh, they're an Asian culture, right? They, they started gaining prominence in the 4th century common era after the spread of the Bible... Um, you know, after the spread of Christianity and everything. So prayer and Confucianism is kind of viewed as the actions one takes to better themselves and the world around them. So since they're an atheistic, it's not a religion, it's a a philosophy. They pray by being better people. That's what their founder was rumored to have said. What they asked, how do you pray? And he said, by my devotion to myself and the world around me. Fine. Is there a specific act of prayer that they did? No, not at all. So why are we including it in, in prayer? Because what it is, is you kind of see how the way they equate, what they equate prayer to is a bettering of oneself. Like regardless of whether or not they do any rituals, to their founder, to Confucius, prayer was being involved in the world, you know, and making it better. So to me, that kind of falls into the Jewish concept of 
hishtadlut, as we call it, or in common vernacular, doing your part. You know, like that's, uh, that's to me, that's right. how it's You can't like, just pray to be righteous. Right, and that's what I was saying earlier. You know, you shouldn't, we don't have this idea of, oh, we ask God for something and he'll do it, or we have a condition with God to do something. That's not how prayer works. Prayer is very complicated. It's like, it's really just knowing and trying to do the research and everything you can do and and doing it, you know, maybe asking God for some like uh, help along the way or whatever it is, but never expecting it from God. And then, you know, kind of asking for the things that are beyond your control, that they should go a little bit more your way. And so um, I think that that's kind of a very brief summary of what true prayer is in Judaism. Mm. Um, that last point that you made reminded me something that says in the Talmud in, in, in Brachot, that uh, somebody who is ma'ayin, he's like observing, after he davens, he's observing to see if his prayer will come true, so it will only bring you to heartache. The person to sit and pray and then say, okay, I'm gonna, now I'm going to sit on my tochus and wait for God to fulfill my prayer, That's not, you're not going to get anywhere with that. Wow, like the Talmud says that it's heartbreak? That's unbelievable. It brings you to heart pain, cave live. Wow. Wow, that's that's good to know. I never knew that. Yeah. Um, so Confucianism kind of made its made its path through China and Asian culture in the fourth century. Um, I don't know Asian culture that well, like at all, because I, I'm I'm a Western person. So Confucianism kind of ends in the fifth century. It's kind of the, like it was around for a century. Um, the new rulers in China, from what I understand, kind of they they really they found Buddhism much more like they, they, they found Confucianism to be not for them. And Buddhism begins to take a rise in the fifth and seventh centuries common era. So it didn't really govern the governments. It was just much more popular as a philosophy in, in, in Asian cultures. And essentially from what I understand, um, there's the sevenfold path of, you know, of the Buddha or there's Buddha's seven, Oh, no, there's seven truths or something. I, I, I forgot, honestly. I'm sorry, people. Uh, I'm sorry, everyone. I forgot. But there's the belief system of Buddhism is that it's aimed at overcoming suffering because to them, life is suffering. And this is what the religious people have said for a long time. Um, it's overcoming suffering and transcending death by achieving this thing called nirvana. So the path to nirvana is a lifetime it's almost impossible to be achieved by all because it's very disconnected from the regular to and fro of everyday life. You know, I know modern Buddhists will disagree with that. From the, from what I've read of the text, it's very hard to be actually involved in the world, like the way we know it today in our culture and be a Buddhist. Um, they don't have really any actual prayers. Prayer for them is very meditative. It's, it's, it's not praying to something. It's kind of see like being aware of what's inside oneself and like their faults and their virtues and like you know it's complicated but it's a it's a psychological philosophy of bettering oneself and transcending you know any attachment that might make you suffer a lot of people latch on to to the ideas of buddhism but they don't they they're not really practicing I don't want to exclude anybody, but there are, you'll meet a lot of Americans, you know, like in Los Angeles that will tell you they're Buddhists, but they just, they don't really have the resources or even 
I mean, most people don't really have the ability to practice what you need to in order to do Buddhism correctly. That's actually the fourth, the fourth biggest religion. Right, the- exactly. How many of them, how many of those, uh, uh, where are those numbers coming from? No, I mean that yeah, when they yeah, ask some you. guy in L.A. It's like, oh, you surf. You must be Buddhist. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, um, so let's go on to the Jewish world of the 21st century. Okay, so if you guys remember at the beginning of the podcast, I made a, we, we started with a, with a joke about offering sacrifices in the altars and everything. Um, so over here is where sacrifices kind of officially end. You know, there's, uh, after the second temple's destruction, sacrifices officially end, um, virtually accepted by all sects of Jews. Um, you know, Christians uh, also, who started out as a section of Judaism, also completely got rid of it. And so it's interesting here. This is a very important time for the evolution of Jewish prayer. Because we have something in the so the Jewish, the Jewish tradition calls upon us to pray three times a day. Um, and this tradition comes from the, a ruling done in around the times of the Talmud, like the fourth century common era, or this, I don't know, first to fourth centuries common era. Um, the Talmud makes a claim that we have to, write, we have to pray three times a day. And this, there's two reasons given for this, but I'm only going to mention one because the other one is more of a, a nice little, uh, a nice little story, you know, kind of to get people to connect to it. But the reason that I will mention is this: the correlation of our prayers today, the morning prayer, the afternoon prayer, and the evening prayer, are correlated to the offerings that were brought at the temple, the morning offering and the afternoon offering. Now there was no evening offering. But the sages instituted it because... Actually, option, they, the, the ruling is actually that the evening prayer is completely optional. And right. that's actually why we don't have the repetition of the Amida at, at, at the evening prayers, just so that people shouldn't forget that it's not really uh, mandated. But since there's an idea that when something is accepted by all Jews, it, it, certain, it gains a certain status and becomes a lot more binding. Right, yes. Yeah. So... Officially speaking, by the original rule of the sa- original ruling of the sages, there's no need for the third prayer. Now, why we incorporated it is there's multiple reasons given. One is because you can offer sacrifices technically until late into the evening, like the afternoon a sacrifice could have gone into the evening time, whatever. Um, and but the other reason, and I think the more probably the more correct reason is that people shouldn't come home from a day of work and be tempted to sin. And rather they should be, whatever that's, whatever sin means, you know, like just be involved in frivolity. And rather they should be, do something introspective. Um, interesting to note, there is a, I heard, once heard this from somebody, I cannot find the Gemara, maybe you know this. There is a Gemara that, there is a sage that said that I wish that I had the willpower to recite the entire hollow, the entire um, compilation of praises in my morning prayer. And so somebody asked on him, what do you mean? You know that we don't allow you to say, uh, uh, we don't allow you to say these praises because, except for the sad times, because really you should be saying these praises constantly. And so somebody answered, no, he didn't mean that compilation of praises. 
he meant the compilation of praises that we refer to today as Pesuket de Zimra. So Pesuket de Zimra, for those who don't know, it's the, it's the compilation of songs that we sing in preparation for the main prayer of each of the three prayers called the Amida. The Amida is our main prayer and this, the compilation of song build up to it. So back in the times of the Talmud, not everyone said the Pesuket de Zimra. It was really started to be said by everyone around the 8th century. Um, it's quite unfortunate in my eyes that we say such beautiful words and very little of us you know, think about it. That's what it is nowadays. You know, what am I going to do about it? Um, but we'll go into this maybe in the third episode about davening and the, and the Jewish, about prayer and the Jewish prayer book. But regardless, let's go a little farther, right? So we know where our prayer origins come from. Now I want to share with you an idea that I think is lost, that the sages always used to add their own little caveats into the prayer. You know, in the times of the Talmud, we have some beautiful prayers that upon finishing their ritual obligation to pray, uh, the sages would add their own little caveat, uh, uh, their own little prayers. For you example... Brachot 17a, 17, 17a, right? Yes, yeah, 17a. Exactly. So the prayer, the, the prayer of the sage Rabbi Elazar, a beautiful prayer. And you see that each one is not tied to an objective view of reality or God or this and that. It's tied to a subjective understanding and subjective relationship with the world and God, which creates this openness to pray and interpret the world. So let's, let's take a look at two very different prayers. We have the prayer of the sage Rabbi Elazar. Um, the prayer is this. May it be your will, Lord our God, Hashem our God, to cause to dwell in our lot love and brotherhood and friendship. And may you make our borders rich in disciples and cause us to ultimately succeed, that we will have a good end and hope. And may you set our portion in the Garden of Eden, and may you establish for us a good companion and a good inclination in your world. And may we rise early and find the aspiration of our hearts to be in awe of your name. And may the satisfaction of our souls come before you. You see this uh, subjective kind of prayer of love and this hope to become a better person in uh, the sage Rabbi Elazar. Now the second prayer by the sage Rabbi Zaira. He says, May it be your will, Hashem our God, that we do not sin or shame ourselves, and that we do not disgrace ourselves before our forefathers. So you see Rabbi Zaira, the sage Zaira, he viewed his self as having to claim some sort of worth. You know, he's, he viewed himself as the seed, as the offspring of the patriarch, um, a virtuous person, like a virtuous people. And he wanted to say, please let me be worthy of being their seed, essentially, right? Two different outlooks. One is make me a, help me be a better person. And the other one is help me make, prove myself worthy of being part of this nation or whatever. And these are powerful things. And they show that you can have your own little interpretations of how to connect with the world. And I think that's very beautiful. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's one of my favorite, favorite uh, pages in, uh, that, I've, that I've seen. Um, so fine. So now we have two things we're going to do and uh, no, three things we're going to say and we're done. Um, so my, Maimonides, our uh, favorite, our favorite uh, Jewish philosopher, everybody knows him. We, we love Maimonides where every Jew hears Maimonides and automatically an intellectual sage, an archetypal sage appears in our, in our eyes. And this is mainly because Maimonides said many, many controversial things. 
he was also a very big advocate, you know, protecting, I guess, not even protecting, but really just opening the eyes of the Jewish people who were unwilling to look at the things outside the Jewish world. And he helped people be educated. And he said that prayer, he says a very astounding thing. He says that it's unfortunate if you could find this in the Guide to the Perplexed. Um, I do not know where exactly. I believe it's in book three. Um, I don't know which chapter. It's in book if three. If you're listening, you won't find it. <laughs> what do you mean? It's there. You can't find anything in more It's there, okay. So, there, the, so in book three of his Guide for the Perplexed, he writes that sacrifices were only a means to introduce a mode of prayer that the Israelites would be comfortable with because the culture that they came from was very involved in sacrifices. And so really he says it's because of the lowly state of man that we had to use animals at all, you know? So, and it's good that we kind of weaned off using animals and we came to prayer with our, with our words. And we see support for this in the prophet Hosea who says, for I desire goodness, not sacrifice, Obedience to God rather than burnt offerings. No, but there's, I see a lot, there's a lot. There's a lot to be said on this topic. There is, but I'm saying it, and people will do more research on this, and they'll like it. If you want to just search up Maimonides on prayer, and you'll find a bunch of scholarly articles. Trust me, there's a lot. Um, and also, there's a lot of lectures online on many sites. Plenty of resources. Plenty of resources on this topic. Then we have the Shulchan Aruch, the, the codified law that is essentially, uh, what, the 16th century or something? I'm not good with, those, with, with dates. Sometime later than the Maimonides uh, book. But essentially, he wrote that, you know, in every section of, our, of your prayer, you should add some of the main prayer that we say, the Amidah, you should add a little something of your own to connect to the prayer before the end of the blessing. And he says ah. you could say it in your own language, you know, and this is something we don't do because we view prayer as a ritual. That's and actually based on the, the Talmudic dictum that uh, a prayer that, that you're not able to to introduce a new idea into, it's not considered a real tefillah. If it's just the same tefillah that you did earlier in the day, I mean, yeah, you fulfilled your obligation, but you kind of, it's not really the point. Yeah. You're right. It's it's unbelievable. It's really like something to understand, and um, that we don't we don't do it like nowadays. It's very sad to me. Like I see everybody that I know virtually, they just pray and they say the words, and you know they whatever. It's it is what it is. But this is an attempt to kind of show people that that's not where it has to end. So now the only new and novel prayers we really have are from the songs that we sing on Shabbat. Many sages, um, most prominent of which and most contributory of which, um, is a man by the name, a sage by the name of Abraham Ibn Ezra, Abraham Ibn Ezra, um, a 13th century French scholar, I believe, or a 12th century, uh, some, somewhere in the early uh, uh, first millennia. Um, he writes many songs that were incorporated into our into our prayers as songs, and it's really beautiful. You see how much he connected to these holidays and everything and i really i think we would like i think i would encourage everyone here to meditate to kind of take a moment and just look at the world around them and recognize god in it you know not only on shabbat but shabbat is a good starting point to do that 
but every day you, you have that opportunity, you know, and it's so sad because we let it go by so many times, myself included, like all the time. Um, but this is prayer until now. It's virtually unchanged since the eighth century for the Jews. We can learn a lot from other religions. We can, and we can learn a lot from other cultures. It's good to incorporate Confucianism, good to incorporate the idea of Buddhism, transcend suffering, act in a righteous manner. You know, it's good to, it's even good to incorporate the Christian and how they incorporated King David, you know, to kind of be free flowing of prayer. You know, we have our own little things that we do. And sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but this is, yeah. Uh, just w one other thing. Um, we mentioned that, that, you know, the, the three, praying three times a day, that was a, a rabbinic establishment, but over here in the Aruch HaShulchan, which is a, basically it was a, a how do you say posek in English? A what? Posek. Oh, uh, oh um, uh, a law? I don't know. Like, uh, sorry, a judge. Uh, uh, kind of like whatever, more or less a, a local rabbi who wrote, who wrote uh, a lot of commentary on the, on the Aruch HaShulchan. He brings, in the beginning of, of the laws of tefillah, he says, the Rambam states in the beginning of Hillel's tefillah, he said, it's a mitzvah to pray Every day from the Torah. So it's you repeat a, this in English? Yes. Sorry. So it, it's a mitzvah. It is an obligation. It's a commandment from the scripture itself to pray every day. Because it says in the verse, you will serve Hashem, your God, with all of your heart. And the Talmud in Masechet Tainus says, how do you serve God with your heart? This, this refers to tefillah. This refers to prayer. Because prayer is service of the heart. And although from the Torah itself, there's no number of tefillos from the Torah, there's no uh, manner of tefillos from the Torah, and there's no set time for tefillos from the Torah. But the idea is the same in that it's to connect to God from, from uh, the, the most genuine place in ourselves, to mm -hmm. connect to God from your heart. It's not about fulfilling uh, uh, time slots in your day. It, Very it, good way of putting it. It becomes meaningful when you put time and effort into making it meaningful. Very good way of putting it. I like that. It's not about time slots in your day. It's about making it meaningful and genuine. Da, 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 da. And I think that's perfect. Yeah, that. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, and see you next time. Or hear, No, actually, you'll hear us next time. And we'll be appreciative of that. God willing.